0: You will need your Bible, so if you need one, hopefully you can scoot by someone who has one or use your phone. Good morning again. For those of you who are visiting this morning, welcome to Anacostia River Church. Uh, My name is Peter Noble. I'm one of the brothers that's been here since the beginning of our church, uh, some six or seven years um, ago. Our uh, primary pastor, uh, preaching pastor, the Bidiani Mubwile is preaching an anniversary, I believe, in Indiana. Um, And so he asked me to deliver and serve the word to you this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to uh, have a good conversation, and hopefully the Lord will be gracious enough to uh, bless me and to bless us together um, as we listen to his word. Uh, Father, we just thank you for your grace and your kindness Uh, Your mercy is beyond our imagination. So, Father, thank you for sending your son into the world so that we could have life, forgiveness of sins, and be with you forever. Father, open our hearts and our minds. Uh, Father, give me clarity of thought um, so that I may serve your people. And I pray that you would sanctify me and sanctify us together in your word. Uh, This word is medicine not only to this congregation, but to me. So Father, I pray that you would transform our hearts and our minds in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Okay, I need a little bit of help here. What is the very first verse in the Bible? That's right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you flip over a chapter into Genesis chapter two, there's a description also of how God is not just the beginning, of the heavens and the earth, but he's also the beginning of humanity. In chapter two, verse seven, it reads, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So there's a lot that could be said here, but one thing I just wanna say just out front is that there is a God, and he is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he's the creator of human beings. And it is because of God breathing into dust, his breath, that we became living beings. So brothers and sisters and neighbors, we are body and soul. We are not just biological accidents, but we are created by the living God with his breath within us to live, move, and think, and have relationship with him. So this morning, we're going to have a conversation how the ordinary Christian, the ordinary believer, should walk with the Lord in faith, in prayer, and trusting him throughout their entire life with a goal of glorifying him. So the very first uh, occasion of prayer mentioned in the Bible is the last verse of chapter 4 in Genesis. And I won't read or explain all of it, but the very second half of verse 26 in chapter 4 of Genesis reads, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Amen. So here we have the first instance of prayer after the fall described in chapter 3. We're calling on the name of the Lord. And uh, one of the commentators I read was reflecting on this particular verse said, They began to recognize that God's promise to have the seed of the woman come and crush the head of the serpent might take some time. And so they began to call on the name of the Lord, and they were calling on the name of the Lord so that he would fulfill his promises. And so that's what prayer at its very essence is, is calling on the name of the Lord in worship, in praise, and calling upon him to meet his promises. So if you'll turn over with me to Matthew chapter 6, we're going to spend the majority of time in the Gospel of Matthew, though we will look in other parts of the Bible. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to begin with chapter 5, and we're going to go through verse 15. When you get there, tell me, amen. Okay, we need a few more amens. When you get there, amen. Lord, help me, I pray. Amen. So this passage is within the context of a larger sermon that people commonly refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it was a bishop in Egypt named St. Augustine, or Augustine, who first, first, first did a commentary on this particular passage, and who started calling this particular passage the Sermon on the Mount. He is the first person who wrote a commentary on this particular particular uh, section of scripture, this famous famous um, and wonderful sermon by Jesus referred to the Sermon of Mount Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You look at chapter 5, verse 3, his sermon starts off with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here he's setting the tone for everything that follows, including the section that we're going to be looking at, And here is this idea that blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, living here in Southeast and working with people that are in need, I don't see, naturally speaking, a blessing in poverty. I don't naturally see a blessing in being in need. I want to have everything I want and need and more. It's not natural for human beings to see a blessedness. In poverty, yet the Lord Jesus begins his sermon with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The necessity of recognizing one's neediness and poverty in spirit is necessary and is a qualification to enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, you want to be found in the kingdom of heaven. And the spirit of poverty or the being poor in spirit is a quality that is going to mark all of those who enter the kingdom of heaven. That is those that recognize their need for God. That recognize that they need him for life and for every single thing. They need him for victory, the victory that's in Jesus, as we sang this morning. So as we approach this scripture, this passage in chapter 6, I just want you to recognize off the bat, it's perfectly okay to recognize that you are in need. Uh, Deacon Lloyd and I studied this passage uh, several years ago, and this idea of being poor in spirit is the idea of being beggarly one who recognizes that they're in need and asks because they're dependent on someone other than themselves. So brothers and sisters, as we consider the verses in chapter six, remember it's blessed, it is a blessed state to be, in spo- be poor in spirit. So let's go to chapter six of the gospel of Matthew, according to Matthew. Before we get to Jesus' teaching about what prayer is all about, he first discusses what prayer isn't. In his day, as well as ours, there are many false, dangerous, and erring ways of thinking about prayer. So verses 5 through 8, Jesus discusses the problems of the people of that day when it came to prayer. It says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. So back in those days, there were play actors, and they were referred to them as hypocrites. It has now come to also mean people that are two-faced, people that show one thing, but inwardly are actually something else. This idea of hypocrisy being an issue is dealt with by the prophet Isaiah. Oh, my goodness. He deals with a passage about your heart, your lips, your heart, you, with your, with your lips, you worship me, but your hearts are far from me. So here we have the very idea that when we pray, that we must not be like hypocrites. There must not be the outward show of piety or religion or worship. but but our hearts are far away from God. We must worship God in spirit and in truth. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love, that is the hypocrites, to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So two places these folks like to stand. One is in the context of a congregation like ours. They want to stand and they want to pray to be seen, to be heard, to be thought well of. And they also, not only in religious context, but at the street corners. This is where major streets cross so they can have the biggest viewing and as many people can hear them, they can have the largest possible audience of how spiritual they are. Now, everyone likes props now and then. Everyone likes attention and praise now and then. But when it comes to prayer, our prayer is not to have the audience of people, but the audience of one. That is our God, our creator, our maker, and as we see, our heavenly father. They love to stand and pray that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, They have received their reward. And what is their reward? That is the praise from other people. The acknowledgement, that's a spiritual person. That's a person I should respect. But Jesus says to the person that's praying to be seen and heard by others rather than by God, that that's the only reward they'll get. They might be seen as spiritual giants. They might be seen as religious experts. But that's the extent of the reward. They are not rewarded by the one to whom it counts. That is God Himself. This idea of reward in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, some people have pitted this teaching against the teaching of Paul, where Paul says, you know, by works no one will enter the kingdom of God, right? There's no reward. For doing good works in terms of being able to enter the kingdom of God. No one by their good works or by their good deeds or by their well wishes or good intentions alone enters the kingdom of God. I would say not only are there are good intentions and good works, but anything else added to it, anything added that comes from us will not allow us to enter the kingdom of God. We enter the kingdom of God by grace and grace alone. We'll have more conversation about that grace and grace alone. But yet God in his wisdom and grace and kindness towards us, not only forgives us of our sins, but he also works within us because he gives us of his Holy Spirit. As John the Baptist taught, Jesus has come not only to baptize the people at a time with fire, that is judgment, but also those who believe with the Holy Spirit. So by the giving of the Holy Spirit, we now inherit something of the nature of our father. And there's a desire that should be growing in the life of a believer because of the work of the spirit that says, I want to do what is pleasing to God. So, verse four, so that your giving may be in secret. So the remedy that Jesus gives to us for wanting to always pray and receive acclaim from others is to pray in private. But when you pray, verse 6, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees you will reward you. Where is the Father? The Father is in the secret place. You do not have to give a public prayer to be heard by God. You can be in a dirty closet, a filthy bathroom, an alley, in your car, and be heard by God. But when you pray, go into your room, that is with intention, go to a place where you can't get, you can't in any way tempt yourself by seeking attention from others. You intend and purpose to go to the secret place where the father is. Now, of course, he is in all places, but you don't need to be with other folks to be heard by the father. The father hears his children. He is in every place. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 24 reads, Even before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Brothers and sisters, the Lord knows our needs. You may be lonely. You may not be able to pay your bills. You may not have a home. You may may have a home that's not safe. You may not have all the support you need for your household to run. God knows all of your needs. You do not, like the person described here, have to heap up empty phrases, repetitive babbling, thinking that by your words, the multiplying of words, being as as, as loquacious as possible with God, that somehow you will leverage God to hear you. If I pray 30 minutes is good, if I pray an hour bad. if I pray for two or three hours, I will move the hand of God. Brothers and sisters, we approach a father who welcomes his children. We don't have to leverage anything within to be heard by our father who loves us. Do not be like the people of the world religions who heap up phrases thinking that they will somehow leverage spiritual power. Repeating mantras for hours and hours. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. By praying and heaping up phrases... You're implying that you're like the peoples of the world who have gods that don't know all of their needs. Their gods don't know because they're not real. So they feel within themselves they have to pray and pray and pray so that God knows. But God already knows. The Father knows all the needs of his children. Do not be like them. So this prayer, the prayers of the people of the world religions are self-focused. They're, pr- they're praying in such a way to get attention. And that also can be true of us, a people of people of, of public faith can be self-focused, praying in such a way as to get attention for ourselves. The prayers here described are extra wordy because they somehow wanna leverage power somehow from God. And they have a false view of God. They view God as someone that's stingy and withholding and not as a good, good father that loves his children and invites his children. So now Jesus moves from the wrong way of praying to saying in verse 9, pray then like this. So the first thing I want you to see is We need to be taught how to pray. I need to be taught how to pray. I do not pray as I should or ought as frequently. I need to be taught to pray more frequently by far, and I need to be taught how to pray. Now, the verse says, pray then like this. It doesn't say pray this. I have a friend of mine who goes to churches and he says, they don't say the Lord's Prayer. They go off and say their own prayers. And, you know, that's wrong because Jesus said you have to pray this. And I'm saying, no, no, friend. We're supposed to pray like this. This is a model prayer that gives us categories in how to think in terms of our attitudes and priorities And it it should guide the prayer life of everyone who follows Jesus. Jesus is the one teaching us how to pray. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He's teaching us to pray like this, to follow this model. He's teaching us the attitudes to have. He's teaching us the priorities to have. And he's teaching us something about who God is and who we are in relationship to God. Let's begin. Our Father in heaven. Amen. So in the Old Testament, if you read the Hebrew scriptures, this idea referring to of God as Father by the believer was not a common thing at all. They had such reverence from God that they would not often not say his name. They would say in... in they would use other ways of communicating rather than say God's name. And they would have viewed the term father as being overly familiar with God, you know, too casual. Sometimes in the Old Testament, you have God referred to as father of the nation of Israel. And sometimes in the Old Testament, you have God as father referred as the father of King David, as the messianic king or the representative of, of God's people. David pointing forward to the Messianic king, excuse me. But here, Jesus, and not just, not just here in this, in, this, in this particular verse, but all throughout the Sermon of the Mount and throughout the Gospel of Matthew, does something revolutionary. For the first time, he often and frequently refers to God as Father. That's family talk. When you call God your father, you are saying, what about yourself? That's right. What a beautiful thing to go to the God who created all things, the heavens and the earth beyond our ability to imagine. And all the microscopic particles that make up atoms and things beyond my ability to understand. He bids us and calls us to call him and treat him as father. Father is the source of your life. If you don't have a father, you're not alive. The father is your provider, the one who teaches, the one who raises, the one who provides. And you say, well, my father wasn't like that. Well, you know that was a bad father. You know what a good father should look like if you call your father a bad father. A good father loves and cares and teaches and disciplines his children. Amen. Our father loves us. A good father loves his children. When we approach him, we refer to him as our father. I used to have a... a friend, she used to work with me, and she said, I don't know about you, but my Jesus. And she was saying it in such a way that it rubbed me the wrong way, like, <laughs> he wasn't my Jesus, too. What I want you to know, friends, is that he is our father. So when you say our father, you not only acknowledge that God is your father, if you indeed are a child of God you're also acknowledging that everyone else that calls upon the name of Jesus is your brother or your sister. There is not one father in heaven for Asian people and another for Latino people and another for black people and another for white people. The God in heaven made us all. And our family, if we are in Christ Jesus, is all of those who call upon the name of the Lord. Keep your finger there and, and turn to the end of chapter 12 in Matthew. I'm going to stay close. Matthew chapter 12 the end of the, the end of that chapter verse 46 It says while he was still speaking that is Jesus to the people behold his mother and his brothers stood outside. That is his biological mother and biological brothers. Asking to speak to him. Verse 48. But when he replied to the man who told him, but he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And that word for brothers can be translated brothers and sisters. Verse 49 and stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Brothers and sisters, if you follow Jesus and you do the will of the Father in heaven, you are my brother and you are my sister, and I am your brother. I am not your sister. We are family because of Jesus. I say this to say that when we pray, we ought not to think only of ourselves. We are in a family. And I'll say more about that in a little bit. Our father in heaven. My dad is is a wonderful man. I love him and respect him dearly. I probably could talk about him for a very long time. But he is not in heaven. Our Father in heaven, this causes the person saying this prayer or the people who are saying this prayer to look above earth and recognize the sovereign God who created the heavens and the earth, who has all power. This should lead to our praise so that we're praying like we did this morning in song, awesome. My God is awesome. He can move mountains, keep me in the valley, hide me from the rain. Great song selection. He is an awesome God. When we see him in heaven, we should see him as high and lifted up, worthy of our thanks and our praise. When I was younger and I heard Older folks, he woke me up this morning. It sounded like a funny formula. You know, it seemed religious, and I didn't quite understand it, but as many of you might know, this, earlier this year, I was very sick. And so I can give thanks. He woke me up this morning. Our Father in heaven has all power. And to his son, he's given all authority in heaven on earth. Therefore, we, we pray, we begin our petitions. Our father in heaven is our address. It's like saying, hello. It's how we greet our God. We, we are invoking and calling upon his name. In the New Testament, we are, we're no longer, we're, we're called to call him, not just Lord He is Lord, not just to call him creator. He is creator, but to call him our father in heaven. That's how we greet him when we pray. So now we begin our petitions. And I don't know about you guys, but there's a lot of stuff I want different in my life. You know, I want to be a little slimmer. I want better clothes. I I want more money for my job. There's some things in my job I wish were a little different. There's all sorts of stuff in the world that I wish was different. But here, Jesus sets a priority for us. He's not ignoring those things, but he's setting a priority for us. And that priority, first and foremost, that first petition is, hallowed be your name. Now, we don't use the word hallowed that often but the idea to make holy or to treat as holy or to honor as holy. And the idea of holy is set apart and distinct and different. So we are honoring as holy, as different, as special, as distinct above all other names, the name of God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are honoring him. Hallowed be your name. And when we're praying that his name be made holy, that has an implication for how we live our lives. Not just on the outside, but on the inside. Not just what we do, but what we say. When you pray, hallowed be your name, out of your mouth, then out of your mouth should also come good words. That same mouth should not be blessing the name of God, and cursing human beings. When you pray that God's name be honored as holy, then you should live a holy life. This prayer sets the mind and the heart with the right priority in how we are to honor God, and that is to hallow his name by living holy lives, lives that bring Him glory, not ourselves glory, but Him glory. The the priority continues on God. Verse 10, your kingdom come. So a kingdom is a realm with a king (laughs) that's ruled by that king. And we've already been introduced in the Gospel of Matthew to the kingdom of God. For both John the Baptist and Jesus, when they begin their ministry preaching, they begin by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom. And many of the parables in in the Gospels refer to the kingdom of God. And one of the things that becomes apparent as you're reading through the Gospel of Matthew in particular, is that Jesus is to be seen as king. He has authority over sicknesses. He has authority over demons. He has authority over winds and waves. He has authority over all things. He has authority, as we'll talk about later, to forgive sins. He has all authority. And when you see that, you must recognize who has this kind of authority, a king. So some people, when they read this verse, your kingdom come, think primarily of the gospel spreading out. And that's not inappropriate. However, most of the time in the New Testament, when the kingdom is referred to, it's referring to the future. The term is eschatological. <laughs> it all, just, all it means is the study of last things. The kingdom come is a prayer for Jesus to return. So in the first verse, we read, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we're coming to God in trust, in reliance, in faith, that we have a good, good Father faith right now. And now your kingdom come is saying, Have hope in what God will yet do through his Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So you could say, like John, in the end of our book, says, come, Lord Jesus, come, Maranatha. That is the prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. Make all the broken things right. Turn over the injustices and deal with the sin, even my own heart. Bring judgment to the wicked. Bring restoration to the earth. Bring restoration to the universe. Your kingdom come. Let the day of restoration and renewal come. The last day when we will be raised up with bodies like our Lord Jesus Christ. Your kingdom come. And then the model prayer goes on. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So these days, there's plenty of people that believe in so-called laws of attraction. You say certain things, positive things about yourself that you want to have happen, and you somehow attract them. Um, To the best of my knowledge, that's all very metaphysical. It comes more from Eastern kinds of religions. It's not rooted in Christianity at all. We are not gods of our own creation. We are creatures in God's creation. So our our focus is on God's will, for God's will to be done. And if you'll flip over with me, keep your finger there in Matthew 6, to chapter 26. Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Chapter 26, beginning at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit there while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. And that cup will be a reference uh, to the, the judgment of God. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said said to Peter, so you cannot watch with me one hour? Watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. When we pray your will be done, we are saying that we are willing to yield ourselves to God's plan, even if it means our own sacrifice, suffering, or even death. It is saying, I am putting your purposes and your plans above any of my purposes or any of my plans. I am putting your will even above my life, if necessary. It is not wrong to pray, if possible, let this cup pass me. You're human. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to pray, "Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven implies that there's something wrong here and something right in heaven that should be happening here. You can look at your own life and the lives of your friends and family You can look at the TV, you can look at your own neighborhood and know that something is wrong here. So we want to pray that God's will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We want to pray as a congregation that we are one and that we're unified in mind, that we're unified in action, that we're not governed by bitterness and gossip or slander, We want to pray that we have the grace to obey God in all things, in our hearts, in our minds, in our words, in our relationships, and in our recreational choices. We want to pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So do you see here that Jesus is teaching us how to pray? He's saying pray then like this. He is teaching us to recognize God as our Father who is in heaven, to be exalted, to be thanked and praised that he's to be hallowed, honored, as holy in the way we live, in the way we relate, in the way we act in the world. And that we are to have a future expectation when we pray. That we pray not, we're also praying that the Lord Jesus return and restore and renew all things. And we're praying that God's will be done, even if it means our suffering in this life. These are priorities that the Lord Jesus has set for us. If your prayer life jumps these priorities, you will be filled with worry. You'll be filled with anxiety because you will not have first looked at God. When you first look at God, you see him in his power. You see him in his might. You see that he has plans for the future to overcome wickedness now. You see that he loves you and he calls you his child. What a wonderful thing it is to be called a child of the living God. You must see these priorities. You must have these attitudes in your heart before you begin to pray for ourselves and for yourself. Verse 11, we switch to our human needs. Give us this day our daily bread. So back in those days, they would make small little loaves. They might look like the size of stones. And Jesus is not teaching us to pray for all the things that I pray for, you know, lower interest rate on a mortgage, a bump up of ten to twelve thousand dollars in my salary, more leave, more, more leave time, more vacation. You know, he's teaching us to pray for basics. This prayer is teaching us to be content. Now, if you've been praying already to this point, you've got your spiritual focus on the Father in heaven and you have a a future expectation of the return of Jesus. I'm not saying don't work hard, don't make plans. What I'm saying is is you've got to be content with what God provides. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord with humility and contentment, give thanksgiving for what you do have. I don't have all the clothes that I want. The sister said, oh, I knew it was you uh, early on because you wear the gray jeans. (laughs) I may not have all that I want or things that you think I should have. (laughs) But together, brothers and sisters, we can pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Let us be content. And when you have this attitude, uh, this is just as, as an aside, when you have this attitude of being content with daily bread, this frees you to be generous. As our God has been generous to us. Who pours out his rain and sunshine on the wicked and the evil and unrighteous. When you pray this kind of prayer, it should be a shift in your mind of thanksgiving and contentment and satisfaction with what you need that day. This is the kind of prayer that fights against anxiety for your needs. I've got bills that need to be paid. But God is providing for me and for you, brothers and sisters, day by day. He will provide for you. He will provide for us together. And forgive us, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So as we looked at or mentioned at the very top of the sermon, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning, God created humanity. So if God created us, we owe him everything. The debt we owe to God is proper, that we worship him as the source of our creation, and the giver of our lives. He is the one who's given us all the good things we have in our lives. Our lives aren't perfect, but everyone appears to have good clothing. Most of you have eaten this morning. Most of you have housing or a place that you can stay. You're alive with future opportunities. God gives and gives and gives. And our response should be to give him our all. So we pray, forgive us our debts. And this is not only our debts towards God, but the things that we should have done for other people that we failed to do, for the sins we've committed against other folks, the trespasses, we've crossed boundaries we should not have crossed, we've lied, we've coveted, we've stolen, we've failed to honor our parents, and so on and so forth. I have my list, you have your list, but we all have lists. We're all sinners in need of a savior. We're all sinners in need of forgiveness of sins. And because we have this need to be forgiven, we should regularly pray, Father, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, our trespasses. And here's the kicker as we also have forgiven our debtors. Oh, there's so much I want to say here, but I'm recognizing it takes me longer to say what I plan on saying. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, You, if you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and put your faith that his death on the cross was a substitute for you and you believe that he's been risen from the dead and is ascended as Lord and is returning, you have been forgiven of your sins. You can live with assurance that the forgiveness of your sins is not based on how good you are. When Christians repent, they repent of their sins, but they also repent of all their efforts to self-justify or to be righteous on their own terms. You are not righteous because you are part of a particular ethnic group. You are not righteous because you were born with a particular family. Your sins are forgiven by grace alone through the body and blood of Jesus being given up for you. Let's go back to chapter 26 of Matthew. Stay there in chapter 6, though, please. Matthew 26, I'll start at the end of, I'll start at verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to disciples and said, "Take, eat. this is my body." And he took a cup, and when he had given things, he gave it to them, saying, "Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters the blood of the covenant, the blood poured out by Jesus on that cross was so our sins might be forgiven. So when we pray, you can go back to chapter six in the gospel of Matthew. We pray, forgive us our debts. That is the basis of us being forgiven. The forgiveness of God does not overlook our sins, ignore our sins, or forget about our sins. The forgiveness of God says, The price, the debt you owe, a punishment, I have put upon my son for all who believe. Now that I'm forgiven and have the spirit of God, I'm fighting against my sins. But if you know me, you know I'm frequently not successful. And I know several of you, and I know several of you are not successful. So we must go to God regularly so that our fellowship with God can always remind us, we can always be reminded that we need forgiveness of sins. We need our debts forgiven. We need those debts forgiven on the grounds of what God has done in Jesus, that Jesus has poured out our sins. And having been forgiven such a great debt, and you can study this in Matthew chapter 18, Having been forgiven such a great debt, our king is angry when we fail to forgive people of much smaller debts. The debt you owe to God, the failure to pay it means eternal judgment and damnation. That's a weight. That is a weighty debt. So you have high mortgages. You're like, how am I going to pay this? or high student loans, how am I going to pay this? This debt that we owe to God is beyond imagination because he's holy and we have not been holy. So the debts that people fail to pay to you in terms of respect and honor, while maybe horrifying from a human point of view, do not compare to that debt that we owe to our creator as we see the forgiveness of God towards us, if we've received that mercy, then we should show mercy. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says at the beginning of the sermon, for they will will receive mercy or have received mercy. So we must walk in faith that God is our father. We must walk in hope That the kingdom will come. We must walk with humility and willingness to suffer for God's will. We must trust that our fathers can provide for our daily needs as his children. And we also must pray forgive us. And as we ask for forgiveness, we must forgive those who sinned against us. I can remember several times that I won't discuss now where I think I've been greatly wronged. Greatly wronged. And I didn't have it in me to forgive. And I still, to this day, wouldn't have it in me to forgive unless God himself had helped me. in this area of forgiveness, which seems so impossible. Why would you forgive that? You need to see God as a gracious and merciful father. You need to see the greatness of what Jesus has done on the cross to bring about your forgiveness. You need to have a hope that the kingdom of come will bring justice to every person that has wronged you and has not come to repentance. We must pray this prayer. This is an attitude, a priority that the Lord Jesus has given to us. Forgive us as we also have forgiven our debtors. This issue of sin is, it's rough. Not only is there a price that that the Lord Jesus has paid for us so that we can be forgiven, but I'm telling you, and you know this already, we're in a fight, right? You're like, why did I do that? Why can't I stop doing this? I wish I could be different. I've always been angry. I've always been lustful. I've always been, I've always been prideful. Whatever those I've always been. How can I overcome this? My father was this way. My mother was this way. My grandmothers was this way. This trait. This selfish trait has been passed down from generation to generation. And I'm in this world. There's so many temptations. Social media, friends, whatever. So many opportunities that the world presents to us. And then there's the evil one himself. How in the world will I overcome? How will you overcome? How will we overcome sin? How will we overcome The temptations that come to us. While the Father leading us, we pray and lead us not into temptation. We must rely on God and God alone to overcome our sins. Uh, By far, I am no great man. I know that I'm a sinner and that I would continue to sin if it were not for the grace of God in my life. He baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. My own spirit would take me into temptation again and again. We must rely on the grace of God and pray. Lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. We need to be delivered. We need to be set free. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved from danger. But as it says in Matthew chapter 1, he was named Jesus, which means God saves, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is that Savior that not only brings about forgiveness, but also deliverance and leadership away from temptation. Hmm. This prayer is our model. This is what Jesus is teaching Anacostia River Church. This is what Jesus is teaching me, and I pray he's also teaching you. These are the attitudes and the priorities that should guide us. We should pray then like this. And our Father is listening. It says when you pray. The idea is that we pray this often and habitually. This is is the breath of our life He's given us the breath of life from the beginning, and we give it right back to him in prayer. Verse 14. So now Jesus is forgiven, has just finished teaching about prayer, how the model prayer, but he's got some commentary that he wants to give, just in case the people in the back didn't hear. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And honestly, he says that not just for those in the back, but he says that for those in the front. It's such a tough area of our life that he wants to emphasize it. So brothers and sisters, praise God. We can approach the creator of the universe, the maker of the heavens and the earth, as our father. We can give him thanks every day for life and for waking us up this morning. He is in heaven with all power and worthy of praise. We can hallow his name and honor his name by praising him. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name we give glory. From the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Let us honor you, Lord, with our lives and our words and our actions. And let us pray together, your kingdom come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Your will be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. We're looking for your will, your plans, and your purposes to be accomplished. And Father, with contentment and thanksgiving, we ask, give us our daily bread. We trust you day to day, not giving into worry, seeing how you provide for the birds of the air. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. As we read your word, we're reminded of how far we fall short. Forgive us our sins, Lord God. Cleanse us again on the basis of what your son has done. As we also forgive our debtors. We've been sinned against in terrible ways. Father, give us the grace to forgive. And not just forgive us, but help us as we deal and wrestle with our own flesh, the old man, the remaining sin that still resides in us. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil and the evil one, Lord God. That's our prayer. And we pray with thanksgiving and praise. We pray just giving glory to his name. And we don't just pray as individuals, but we pray as the community. Notice it says, give us this day our daily bread. We're not just praying for our own. We're not just praying, forgive me, but forgive us. We're not just praying, God, don't lead me in temptation, but help my sisters and my brothers in their fight against temptation. And all the traps of the evil one, don't just deliver me, but deliver us. Embedded in this prayer is a spirit that says, love one another. So with faith we pray, with hope we pray, with love we pray. Father, hallowed be your name. Glory to your name. With wisdom and power and might, he reigns. Jesus is Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.